Welcome to Ontario Labs, a podcast for politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Sam Andrew. Oh my God, friends, what a week. On the podcast today, we have a deep dive on the transformation of student financial assistance that took place under the Kathleen Wynne government uh, and its subsequent dismantling under the Ford government. We'll be getting some help from the good folks at Dive Student Aid, which is an interactive online storytelling and learning platform developed by the Ryerson Leadership Lab. And those good folks I recently uh, mentioned will be Sam Andrew uh, and uh, us. Um, Ooh, shock surprise. I have shock surprise. Yes. What a cliffhanger. Surprised by the thing that we put in the script. Uh, yes, uh, Sam's with Sam's other life as director of research for the leadership uh, lab, as well as our collective history in the student aid world and time in government during this change. We actually think we might be the experts uh, that we need and be able to do this one ourselves. So, Looking forward to that. But first, obligatory mention of the Toronto and Peel entering lockdown today, Monday, November 23rd. I'm not sure we have much overall pandemic commentary after our last pod. I think we pretty much said everything Everything we said then applies now. But uh, I just want to check because it is kind of a major change. It's um, going to be disrupted to a lot of people's lives. And if anyone wants to add any lockdown stories, anecdotes, what is on your winter movie line up now that it has increased in importance substantially my partner and i watched home alone one and two this weekend and they're as great as ever um what, not three what do i <laughs> <laughs> no, no but what do i think about all of this i mean yeah it, to be expected this was you know four weeks too late really um I think I think that the reaction from small business and like the you know uh, CFIB and the the kind of retail community that keeping all big box open while the small uh, businesses and retail are, are closed, especially over the Christmas season where you know they make a lot of their revenue, I totally sympathize with. I don't like the solution is not that obvious to me because. I also get where the government is coming from. Um, and like Manitoba has done this thing where like essential places like, like a Costco Walmart can't sell non-essential goods, which seems just practically tricky, right? Like, so yeah, I don't know what the obvious solution is, but I sympathize with it. And I think it, it really sucks. And I know that they're pushing for like a three person maximum, like three customer maximum as like a soft, but I also get that they're not, it's not really about the number of people. It's about, you know, stay home. Right. So anyway, I, just, just a random musing that I don't know the, what the answer is, but I feel bad. And then I think the other thing that was silly is the exclusion of York region it just feels like York will inevitably be added in like one to two weeks, like the division and travel between especially like Scarborough and North York and York region is like, there's no border. Like, what are we talking about? And so, uh, that, that was, seems like, seemed like a misstep. Yeah. I agree with all that. Uh, I was also taken aback, I guess, in the last few days by Quebec's seemingly crazy plan for Christmas where they're going to ease some of the restrictions just in the days when people tend to all gather in large groups for Christmas. Um, so that was interesting. And then I think the, uh, reaction of some of the religious minorities in the province who've obviously been uh, subjected to some um, 
some pretty ridiculous uh, policies in recent years, uh, had a very fair, I think, pushback saying, why are you guys giving special treatment for a religious holiday that just happens to be the majority holiday uh, and no treatment whatsoever for our own uh, holidays uh, that have and continue to happen all the time. So, I mean, yet another... If any if, province was going to yeah. do that, let's be real. It was going to be It Quebec. was, yeah, that's true. So, oh, Quebec. Um, yeah, Quebec's going to Quebec. Uh, I have nothing to add except uh, when I saw the crowds at Yorkdale uh, this weekend, I thought that Doug Ford and retailers really put new meaning to the phrase shop till you drop uh, this weekend because <laughs> oh. it is so... Like, this is... I mean... I don't know if it was by design, but like announcing that there's going to be a lockdown in two days basically guarantees that everything that's going to be locked down is going to see huge crowds. Like I even thought about getting a haircut. I just decided I thought I decided that would be dumb that I will just leave this looking like Jerry Garcia or like another 70s rock star. But, you know, um, uh, yeah, super, super unsafe shopping this weekend. It was so predictable. But they were criticized last time for springing it on people with no notice, right? And like people having stock or people having like, you know, food or whatever. Like, so it's it's just a shitty situation. It's lose-lose yeah. all around. Get your toilet know. paper now, folks. I'll check my I'll check my outrage. I really, really just wanted to make the shop till you drop uh, joke. There is one thing I want to discuss briefly, uh, specifically related to the pandemic, which is this curious exchange that happened last week surrounding the deliberations around potentially closing schools. On Tuesday, Minister uh, Stephen Lecce told Queen's Park reporters that he was seriously looking at solutions that may include some period outside of the class in order to protect gains made in the province. Alexia, so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah, so couple of different measures it sounded like were being considered based on uh, his his first words the most serious would be considering um closing schools obviously for an additional two weeks after the december break and the idea there would be to give students and staff some time to isolate after holiday gatherings uh, which was a suggestion made by the uh, directors of education across the province uh, it's, it's was very short-lived, it seems, though. The premier clarified later in the week that uh, no decision had been made, but also that the decision would be made with the chief medical officer of health's input. And um, the next day, Lecce announced that schools would remain open with no break. So kind of weird. Um, Ford described the process as, quote, Lecce put his plan in front of the health advisory table and Dr. Williams said no, end quote, which is uh, sort of a strange message to send from the government, uh, considering how incredibly close they've been about the deliberations internally um so yeah that was kind of odd anyone else have thoughts about what stakeholders were saying on this one i agree it was like an interesting uh, look behind the veil because to your point they've really kept that stuff mostly mostly under wraps um i sort of get the desire to extend it by by a week and try to create like a, a buffer from from the uh you know, inevitable large family gatherings. Um, presumably, I assume that Dr. Williams or whoever pushed back, pushed back because, you know, having essential workers and essential businesses open without schools being open is, you know, really difficult as we experienced through kind of March, April. And so I assume that's got to be the motive, like the policy motivation, but uh, yeah, and it, it just an interesting kind of look into you know the tension that's going on inside the government on a whole bunch of things. 
Yeah. And I think the curious other thing about this is that a number of chief medical officers have come out against the idea of school closures. I think for those, like the Ottawa one is a stands out. He was in a lot of the newspapers saying it's like school closures are not uh, the best thing for public health. Uh, it's also interesting that teachers unions have been mixed in their support. OSSTF was sort of tepidly in favor of the week extension. At FO said they just had no position on it. So it's interesting because like in my mind, it's a move that is gar- designed to protect the teachers. I mean, you know, we know that a bunch of people are going to gather over Christmas in flaunting of the public health experts. The director of education's point was like, can we create a buffer? And um, for the unions not to be anywhere on this, I thought was an interesting um, position. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of worry out there. And so I'm curious what we think from uh, the politics and, you know, if there's any, like, any other sort of observations we want to make on, like, on school closures, what we think the government should be weighing, what are the politics they're sailing into? I think I think the politics should be informed by the fact that the teachers unions have been quite quiet on this. I think they realize that there is not a lot of support for shutting the schools down again and uh, that the better tactic to take is one of making our schools safer, making the investments that are needed, which also better aligns with the things that they want in general, like smaller class sizes, for example. Um, and I think that would generally be the perspective of most parents out there as well, that keeping schools open and safe is the priority. Um, and I think going back to what Sam said, uh, I imagine that as the healthcare system becomes more and more uh, under strain with COVID, uh, making sure that every single uh, healthcare professional who is required to um, battle this thing can make it to work because their kids have somewhere to go is obviously of important uh, importance to the chief medical health officers. So um, yeah, I think politically it's you know, this not closing the schools is probably the right move for the government. I think the the always sort of political difficulty with them is between spending more money to make the schools safer or not spending that money. And I think that's that's where they've taken a strong stand on not spending more money, um, and that may be uh, where they're more vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. No, my my uh, my only other uh, I have two two thoughts here. Uh, one is that. Um, one interesting thing that the chief medical officer of health said in Ottawa is that they've actually seen when they close daycares and stuff, like controlled settings that have cleaning, that have protocols in place, and students go home, that they actually see increased risk of transmission, and they, um, which I think is a, a really interesting nuance that um, helps also explain the chief medical officer's support for health. Like, you know, they're clearly more worried about what's happening in homes than, yeah. than schools right schools now. Schools also aren't a model um, of threat. Like we, and, we've learned more and more that the age of the students is important in this thing, right? So um, if they were to close schools, maybe exactly. you could make an argument for closing secondary schools, um, but leaving primary open, for example, as we've seen that uh, primary seems to be much less of a dangerous transformation zone. Well, I think that's that's enough uh, pandemic. Want to move uh, maybe now to our uh, deep dive on OSAP? Yes, let's do that. So, <laughs> thanks, Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to sort of dive into this today. Yeah, so like OSAP and post secondary policy is certainly an issue we've we've dug into before on this pod, but we thought we would go back and do a deep dive because, as Chris mentioned, as part of my role at at the Ryerson Leadership Lab, we built a digital case study um, and had a bunch of 
people participate in interviews um, that we've since uh, put up online. And so we're going to play some of those segments today and then and then get some reactions to what uh, we hear. It includes Premier Wynn, includes um, Deb Matthews, who um, was the Treasury Board president at the time. It includes uh, Mitch Davidson, who um, was Doug Ford's uh, director of policy. Um, and so it's an interesting kind of look back at what was one of the biggest changes in post-secondary policy in a really long time. Um, and then it's kind of subsequent undoing. And I think lots of lessons to be learned um, from how government makes decisions and and implements them. So um, we're excited to do that. And I think, you know, why we did this case studies are kind of a longstanding, well-used uh, tool in education and learning. Um, but that we tried to do basically like a media powered reboot. They're ten- these these case studies that are used in policy schools tend to be, you know, static PDFs um, that students read. And so we tried as much as possible to create kind of a Netflix style experience. It's a 45 minute documentary um, split into a series of episodes with additional resources like reports, news articles, infographics, extended interviews um, spliced in. Um, And so it's all available uh, for free under a Creative Commons license at divestudentaid.com if you want to check it out yourself. But we're going to play some uh, today as well. And I should uh, mention this was uh, created by um, the Ryerson Leadership Lab in partnership with um, Andre Cote, John Meadow, and uh, the digital media firm Sandbox, and is now being used by a bunch of universities, colleges, and, and professional training organizations. Um, we're going to now uh, play a, the opening clip of the trailer um, just to sort of uh, set this up. The country was basically broken. The Wall Street Journal called the Canadian dollar the northern peso. I think there had been a fair bit of pressure from student groups around what they felt was a rising debt burden. They came and said, we have a way of making tuition free for a lot of people. I can remember hearing the words free tuition and thinking, oh my God, how are we going to do that? I think the government was in a place where electricity prices were a huge issue for them at that time, and their credibility had just fallen on certain affordability issues. And so when Premier Wynne was able to go out and say free tuition, people just kind of said, what's the catch? Knowing that there was a policy that was put in place to help folks just like me to go back to school definitely cleared the pathway a little bit more. It was very ambitious and it was very risky. Can you imagine 500,000 students waiting to go to school who don't get paid? That's a catastrophe. Government? Every now and then, you need to really take a good hard look at what you're doing and what you're trying to do. And sometimes you have to blow it up and start over again. You got to do big things that stir the blood because that's the only things that matter. So don't bother with small crap. All right, so team, help me set this up. We all play different roles at different times in this story, and it sort of goes from 2015 to early 2019 as the government considered uh, implementing free tuition, implemented it, and then it was subsequently undone um, by the Ford government. And so um, maybe just help me lay out where were you at in this period uh, when we were in government um, and what was the policy problem that uh, the government was trying to solve from, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, so for me, it went. It actually goes back way further. I mean, the three of us would remember talking about this issue well before 2015 when it started to get political traction. We were um, doing everything we could to get the ear of the premier's office when we were all at 
uh, at the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance. Uh, and that was back in, I mean, that was 2011, 2012. And it would have been before that even that uh, it became a priority for, for USA. So this was something that students were pushing for for probably a decade before it really, um, the right people were in the right place and the right um, fiscal environment and all those kinds of things sort of came together. Um, in terms of after that, uh, I saw part of this from the Treasury Board perspective, but I had missed the sort of the pivotal year of the OSAP boulders. Um, so I saw it uh, sort of the second year through there. Uh, and um, I definitely remember having many conversations internally with other political staffers about it, uh, people in the Premier's office, people in uh, TCU, uh, people um, who've been involved in trying to push this thing for for quite some time in, in various hats themselves. Uh, in terms of what the government was trying to fix, I think uh, to me the biggest thing is actually the uh, amount of money that is spent on student aid and the uh, poor ability to explain to people quickly what that actually buys you. And that has been a problem in student aid across uh, the country, obviously, like arguably across North America for for a long, long time. And so I think this is a problem where we were there's a huge investment and people just didn't weren't able to understand because it's too complex uh, to factor intuition and financial aid at the same time in making decisions. And so the problem to me at the end of the day was actually one of this this communication idea. How do we how do we repackage what we're actually doing on student aid in a way that resonates with people? And I think that's the big um, victory of what this uh, what this change did. Yeah, no, I would agree with that, Alexi. And I remember um, my sort of primary interaction with this file directly was. When I was a student leader working with the, you guys at the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance, and I remember there was like something for a long time that I think it was like fundamentally broken in the debate about higher education affordability. Um, there was sort of a camp represented by the universities and folks who were really who were, you know, sort of I'd say had the um, the reins on power in policy who basically said like it is better to make education affordable by having tuition that is medium to high, but, you know, spending your government investment on reducing the price of education targeted to low income. And that was the best way to increase investment in the sector to institutions, but also make sure that the uh, it was flat. And we'd seen just for years that there are a number of groups that weren't participating in higher education at the same rates. And so, but it was really hard to like get that through to say, because you'd say, okay, access isn't great. And then the response would be, well, we need more targeted financial aid. And really, this was, I think, an attempt to look at the existing levers and say, how do we make those levers speak to the groups that aren't going? And that was the first kind of time I I saw that, reorg- that, that critical look at what we were doing happening um, and sort of broke through, I think, a really stagnant policy conversation, post-secondary education that had been taking place for some time. Okay, awesome. Thank you. And I think now let's listen um, to a short clip from Deb Matthews. So Deb Matthews was the president of the Treasury Board at, at this time and hear her perspective on the role that student advocacy through through USA, who we, uh, the three of us, all um, worked uh, for at some point. And then we're going to listen to uh, Premier, then Premier Wynn and Deb um talk about how they chose to kind of move this idea forward through the through the budget process. Every minute is scheduled, but uh, you always make time. You have to make time for people who are bringing new ideas and that's part of the job. 
USA, Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance. I had a good relationship with them, probably because Western is in my riding. And I had been a student when I was elected. So I had a natural relationship with USA. We met in the cafeteria, the Legislative Assembly, the Pink Palace at Queen's Park. I was happy to meet with them, but I had to squeeze it into house duty time. I had to be within three minutes if the bell started ringing, I had to be in my seat. I was not expecting them to come up with something as brilliant as they had. Because most people, when they want a meeting, sit down with you, are, go are gonna tell you how you can spend more money. And they came and said, we have a way of making tuition free for a lot of people with upfront grants. We can take down some real barriers to post-secondary education. And I thought, okay, this is gonna be outrageously expensive or whatever. But it turns out they knew exactly what they were doing. What they presented was eliminate the tax credits. The people who are getting that money need it the least and take that money and convert it to upfront student grants. As they walked me through their proposal, it was clear to me that they understood what our goal was, better access, no more money, and their proposal actually reflected our ability to drive change, and USA nailed it. From that point on, I was really committed to doing what I could to actually implement the plan. We were going through a program review process at the same time that we were trying to deal with this deficit that really had not gone away since uh, post the recession. And in fact, we'd increased the deficit when I came into office because we needed to build infrastructure. And so it was tough. It was very tough. We had very in-depth discussions about the fiscal health of the province and where we needed to go and what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. Were we going to raise taxes? Were we going to lower taxes? Were we going to cut programs? Were we going to constrain ministries? I mean, all of those conversations happened right up front. My mandate was clear from the Premier to get better value for the money we were spending. And if there were better ways, different ways of doing things, then it was our job to implement that. We decided that the way we would approach it would be to look at, we called them boulders, groups of programs that had the same goal. And one of the boulders we identified right off the bat was student financial aid. So we forced finance and TCU to actually work together to develop a student aid plan that was way simpler for students and increased participation rates amongst those with the lowest rates. There's a culture that I have never understood in governments. People get very protective of their programs and they tend not to work well together. And so that was a big part of the challenge is this is our shared goal. As a government, this is our goal. Finance, you have money. TCU, you have ideas and money. Let's get them working together. The room in which Treasury Board meets is this dark, windowless room. We're there for hours and hours on end. There are way more people in it than it was built for, so it gets kind of there, isn't as fresh as you might hope, but they're long and hard meetings. 
So we had 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 a series of items already, then finance and TCU came to present on their boulder. Government communicates in decks, and a deck is just a PowerPoint presentation on paper. There's a lot of paper used in these decks. So finance reported on their side of things, TCU reported on theirs, two separate decks. It was not a unified, integrated approach. So we sent them away and said, work together on this. A few weeks later, they're back. Two decks became one deck, two decks stapled together. It was still not a unified approach. And I have a reputation of being pretty mild-mannered. I don't lose my cool very often. But on this occasion, I did. I had to really push hard at that meeting to make it crystal clear that what we were looking for was something radically different. I know that my deputy was away. He said his Blackberry blew up with people saying, the minister's losing it. The minister's really mad. <laughs> and he was going, uh-oh, this minister doesn't get mad very often. So he knew there was something going on. It was possible to do it. So why wouldn't you just do it? I was able to kind of blow up the inertia and then they just ran with it from there. All right, friends. So, yeah. So, what do you, what do you think about what you heard? What what were the conditions you think in place that helped move this forward this time? Because Alexia, as you say, this was an idea that had its genesis in student advocacy, dating back a decade. So, you sort of heard Deb and Kathleen's different kind of takes. Yeah. So, I, I guess I wanted just to hear reactions from you guys about, about what you heard. Yeah, I think Deb is absolutely right when she talked about the difficulty of getting people to work together in government and, and not understanding that culture. Um, the That was the problem that we ran into for years leading up to this being a success. And I think the main reason was we just didn't have, we hadn't convinced the right people politically. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of sort of students now, the right people politically in the government to to force the, especially the Ministry of Finance to work more collaboratively with uh, the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities. And so as a result, the project could only get so far because it required working across ministries and reimagining what the current investment in tax credits could buy in terms of uh, free tuition pledge for low-income students. And uh, without the folks of finance or with the folks of finance feeling somewhat threatened by that approach, um, it was never going to get done. And so I think the the breaking the logjam required the leadership of ministers, like very high up in government to embrace this idea and push it forward. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think, and I think from my perspective, Paris Szymanski being um, the premier's advisor on, on education and post-secondary education was critical um and her and deb had a good uh relationship so i think those two things working together um made it happen and i think you know i so uh, before this time i was the manager of osap policy from 2012 to 2014 and so i had a pretty like inside view of how finance kind of talked about this and it was fascinating because like their definition of what is progressive is only about the tax system, right? And and the idea is that if you don't give people a break on the expenses they spend on productive things like tuition, uh, then you're making the tax system less fair, right? Um, and so, like th that was just the way they looked at it. And so, the idea of of giving that up um, to be spent on a direct program expense 
even though the goals were the same, they just, they couldn't understand it. And so people were saying, but, but it's, you know, students have to wait months or years for the, um, for the benefit. It does, that part doesn't make sense. It's, you know, regressive because higher income people file more and have, you know, uh, income to, to, um, get the credit back. And, uh, they just couldn't see it that way. Um, and so it did take that kind of political leadership to say, we don't care. We're taking the money and we're going to spend it on something else. Um, and I think Deb kind of puts that really, really well. I just want to make a quick plug for the other big piece of this, which I don't know if we're going to get to on the pod because we don't have time to get into this, but you can find it on the Dive Student Aid website. And that's just the importance of the the IT transformations and just sort of the building blocks that were laid leading up to this by the good people who work in, in OSAP policy. I mean, talking about free tuition is one thing, but creating the computer systems and the integration with uh, university and colleges so that you can provide a net zero billing where you, um, uh, or sorry, net billing where you uh, have um, the students knowing exactly how much they're going to spend on their education net of tuition and, fi- and f- uh, financial aid upfront before they make a decision about enrollment. Like these are key changes that get less attention, but are, are just really important backroom back end changes that good people were working on for a long time. Yeah, totally. And thank you. Thank you for plugging that. There are a couple episodes uh, that we're not going to listen to about that. And, and you're right, it was foundational. And uh, speaking of the Ford government ruining things, which we'll get to a bit later on this pod. Uh, uh, they've intentionally broken that link that was built by those folks uh, between the college and university application uh, centers and, and OSAP applications, presumably to, to have lower rates of application and, and save money. And that's a real shame, but we'll get to that. Okay. So let's hear now. Um, we're going to bring in Sheldon Levy, who was uh former Ryerson University president, and then became the deputy minister at training colleges and universities who helped play a role in the final stretch of when this then got approved. And you'll hear from Deb and Kathleen again. When I first came to become deputy, I was uh, was in the first few weeks the issue of OSAP transformation was being talked about in government. There was already a sense before I got there that something had to be done. When I came in, uh, I didn't have experience to know that things couldn't happen. I used to say that it all reminded me of snakes and ladders. You think you're right at the end, all of a sudden you got a snake and you're at the beginning again. This was the chart that made the difference of all of them. The strength of this chart is you say, You see what it means at the bottom of this chart? There's a 20%, that's one in five chance that someone is going to go to university at low income. So let's get up to even $150,000 of family income. It's now 80% chance. If you don't have an education, you don't have a job. So what you're really saying is that people in this bracket are, are going to be the unemployed. And that's okay, right? Right? And that... That was the rallying call. That chart was the rallying call. This one graph turned out to be so critical because it became the easy way to describe or the elevator pitch of why were we doing this. And so for those that in the public policy realm, there is nothing more important than communicating things in a simple way to audiences that are not about you 
but about the average person. I remember saying to people, it won't work unless you say it's free. Forget about this uh, three asterisks and seven asterisks and that. Let's say it's free. If you make it complex and you want to worry about the person that won the, uh, the lottery and it won't be free for them, or if they got, if they inherited $20 million from Uncle Fred, it won't be for them. If all of those things are going to have you write public policy so the 99% have no clue that they are the, the one you really want to help, forget it. I have to say it was that leap and uh, the minister I worked for who got it very, very well that took a considerable amount of courage by saying we're going to call it free. And you could say, but, oh, hold on, it's not free because what happens if you have an athletic fee? It's not free. What happens? And the answer was, we're going to say it's free for you, the tuition part of your education. I was satisfied that we had done the job, that we had nailed it. But Treasury Board doesn't make the final decision. The Ministry of Finance doesn't make the final decision. It has to go through the Premier's office and the Premier and her staff. So Premier's staff, they do, they do their job. They, they kick it and poke at it. And if it hangs together for them, the Premier gets to take a look at it. I can remember hearing the words free tuition and thinking, oh my God, how are we going to do that? But it was coming from Deb Matthews. It was coming from the, you know, people who I trusted. And so the program review process was about finding ways to do the things we needed to do more rationally and looking at programs and looking at what was working and what wasn't working. So before I had any of the details about what her proposal was, I had that notion that this was something that we were looking at. I do remember for me the penny dropping when I understood that what we were talking about was changing tax credits that were benefiting disproportionately uh, wealthy people and turning that into a grant for students at uh, lower incomes and that made eminent sense to me. I really loved that trade-off. I loved the, um, the elegance of it. Once the Premier was good with it, I said, are we going to call it free tuition? Yeah, we can call it free tuition. That was pretty exciting. So we heard there a lot about the genesis of the the tagline, free tuition. And that was a really divisive thing within government. It remained divisive after the announcement about whether that was misleading to students and families. And, you know, certainly the opposition criticized that. With, like, the benefit of hindsight, do you guys think it was the right choice for the government to call it free tuition? I do, personally. Um, I think the the benefit of the simple communication – I mean, it, it, so there's, there's two questions here, right? There's the political – question of, you know, did the government take a lot of flack for uh, oversimplifying something that is incredibly complex and just calling it free tuition for people under a certain income level? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you can debate back and forth on, um, you know, how how beneficial that uh, that uh, simple message was versus the, the pushback that they got. But to me, the, the main policy objective here was to be able to communicate this easily to tens of thousands of people who otherwise thought that they wouldn't be able to go to university or college uh, and who needed to understand that there was a, a simple system that was now in place that would 
help them in a way that um, they probably didn't realize before because the communications were so much more complex around tax credits and financial aid and tuition and all these things being separate and hard for people to understand. And so that's what tips it for me. I mean, call it free tuition because that's what got a lot of people to sit up and say, oh, I can go to university and college. And that's that's the goal here. That's that's the that's the the, the big payoff from this whole thing. It's interesting because I find that video both uh, – I totally agree with everything Alexi said. Uh, Alexi's right. Um, I have a little bit of frustration because I remember being a student leader and saying all of these messages to different parts of government and sort of never having them break through in the way that – I think this video, it sort of shows you know the chart – is sort of what helped it break through the penny drop for the premier when she realized it was taxes to upfront grants. And it's like, these were all messages that were being delivered for years and years and years and years. And I think it goes back for me to this point of like, it wasn't sort of like one, the eureka moment that happened that everyone sort of described and the simplicity of how it all could work together was something that was being uh, like all took a, a long time and a lot of work to uh, to build and to to get to, and you know it took various people being in different positions in government to I think make it make it happen because um, you know I remember saying those specific things to different government decision makers or and you know other student leaders doing it too and you know um, years before it actually sort of took hold uh, so I think it's an interesting interesting case study of how a simple message can be powerful but it's not just like it, a simple message can also take a long time to work its way through government specifically. Yeah. I if that makes any sense. I think that's right. Um, okay. So let's fast forward here. So it works. They implement it. It works beyond expectations. So the number of applications goes up by uh, 20% when they really only budgeted for 2%, you know, massively over uh, budget. Um, and, this all happened in 2017-18. You'll recall uh, that there was an election in June 2018. The PCs win a majority and have a whole very different perspective on this thing. And then a few months uh, into their term, uh, the Auditor General does a value for money audit of um, the reforms and find, found that post-secondary enrollment had not risen in the first year of implementation by very much, only about 1% or 2%, um, while the number of OSAP awards went up a lot. And she pointed to this as um, evidence that the program wasn't working. The Ford government then uses this um, to uh, cut the budget approximately in half um, and undo uh, most of the benefits that were paid for uh, with the tax credit uh, savings. Um, so now let's listen to... Um, perspectives on how that all went down. When the Auditor General's report came out, and I think the Auditor General's report was a hit job, some of that stuff was written in a language which is not Auditor General-like. One of the reasons I really think the fix was in was because the, the quality of the examination was bad. It was in some ways the previous government's fault because they didn't do the implementation research that would have given a better story and a more accurate story. And I think the reason they didn't do that was because at a certain level, the Liberal government genuinely believed that spending money was a good thing in and of itself. When the auditors started to look into the OSAP program, um, we, we obviously had an understanding that that was coming. We were able to see sort of 
um, the types of rabbit holes she was going down. And, and then ultimately we get a copy of her report in advance. So we were able to see those sorts of things. So we had a really good sense of where the OSAP direction was focusing. And so on OSAP, the auditor was doing a true value for money. Is this program getting exactly the results it's supposed to for the cost that it's supposed to? She said there was a, a significant increase in expenditures, which was true, but she didn't calculate in the tax credit savings without a corresponding increase in, in enrollment. That's not the right way to measure it, right? Because people were accessing it more, enrollment started to climb, Groups of people we were really hoping would grab that opportunity, were grabbing that opportunity. Um, so it's, uh, I don't think she did a good job. The argument about them overspending was an interesting one, right? Because at one level, it might mean that there's more waste. You're encouraging a bunch of people who don't need the money to get it. On the other hand, it might be a sign of success. Look how many people are signing up and getting student aid for the first time. Um, and we're having an effect. Again, there's no data to tell us this. I think the conclusion is, no, we did not see the kind of a proportionate jump or even really much of a change in the number of people attending university. I think it depends a little bit on what the goals were. Were the goals of the reform to reduce debt for the students already in the system um, because it accomplished some of that? Um, were the goals of the reform to increase access? And if so, for whom? From my perspective, those stats about single mothers and Indigenous students and low-income students, to me, those were the significant numbers so that even if overall there wasn't an exponential increase in the number of students, there were different students who had benefited and were in post-secondary who otherwise wouldn't be there. When we got to government, we realized that that pressure, because uh, we had no idea from the outside, it wasn't, uh, there There was in the 2018 budget a, a identified pressure of increased OSAP enrollment, but that pressure was about $300 million in the first year. And by the end of our mandate, it'd be over $700 million. And the program itself is only, you know, when we got there, it was only about 1.8 billion. So that's like a 30, 40% increase uh, in cost as a result. And so that is a huge issue, um, that, you know, they, they sold it as a cost neutral program. And I think for every intention it was supposed to be, but the way that people react to a policy, um, changes outcomes, right? You offer roll up the rim and all of a sudden more people buy Tim Hortons, right? So I think that's exactly what happened and they didn't properly anticipate that coming. We were given a mandate to go in and right size government spending and places where it was free is a natural place to start. Ultimately, this was a move back to loans from grants in some capacity. I think the couple of things that are, are lost in the conversation is exactly how similar we were to the previous government's policy before they changed to free tuition. If you look at 2016-17, the sort of grant ratio was about like 73% of the funding was grants compared to loans. There's a desire within government, specifically within the Ford administration, to reflect the views of, of common folk and, and everyday people. And so you have this, this desire to right-size the ship in a bit of a conservative structure, but you also have this sort of, people call it populism, maybe that's the right word, but you have this more populist bent of sort of appeasing what general, uh, what the general desire of the public is. I think that was the philosophy going in. 
Okay, so friends, what do we think of all this? Um, you know, were the criticisms of from the new government and the Auditor General um, fair, you know, rooted in some truth? Uh, and maybe, you know, this was obviously a yo-yo for students, you know, a big benefit than taken away um, a year later. Um, what's the legacy of all this. Yeah. I mean, everything's rooted in some truth, not enough in my opinion on this, in this uh, case. So the, the truth that it's rooted in is one that the government um, didn't do a great job of estimating how many people were going to take up OSAP um, as a result of this change. And I mean, that's a tall order for sure, but it's still the case that the government uh, was, was far off in its, um, its fiscal projections of the cost of the program. And two, that there isn't a good uh, culture or uh, structure in higher education in Ontario of measuring outcomes. So, so it's it's not that um, that the the auditor general had had uh, good data at all or was using even the right metrics, but she was able to point to a fact that the government couldn't tell a strong enough story about the return on investment of the money it had put in. And so uh, I think that gave her leeway to kind of uh, invent her own uh, poor metrics, which uh, then enabled the government, uh, uh, the Ford government to uh, defund the whole thing. So it's a sad sort of story, but I think those are the two places where there was a kernel of truth. Um, But if you want more criticism of the Auditor General's uh, position on this, check out uh, the op-ed we wrote in the uh, Ottawa Citizen back in the day. And I think there's also a podcast in the archives where we rip into the Auditor General's report on this. So another extremely frustrating thing, because I, I think to your point, Alexi, like the government didn't tell a story that was good enough about this because the government who, you know, it was uh, really super close to the election. And then I think when this decision was getting made, it was the Ford government who I don't think particularly cared to tell a lot of the really important stories about indigenous students about low-income students about the demand i mean you know it's a costing problem but um you know i think perhaps the sort of sell on the pitch that this would be sort of a mostly revenue neutral change didn't come true but like you know absent a serious dive into the good that it did in terms of equity and equitable participation i think it's a it was a bad analysis and a really frustrating um I remember being really frustrated at the time. It's also, I think, a, a, it's been a big teachable moment for me because I think when this program happened, it was, we said, spend the tax credit dollars on upfront grants and that will do more good. And the upfront grants were taken back and now we don't have tax credits or upfront grants. Students don't have tax credits or upfront grants. And so I think it's really worth thinking about how you build political coalitions around these things and how you uh, start building I mean, it's no secret that students are not a feared political coalition at Queen's Park with low youth voter participation. And that's something that you get uh, you get as a student leader back when you're lobbying a lot of the time. And uh, it's just a, um, a frustrating thing. But, you know, the importance of political coalitions, I think, is important. So, Sam, you're the one who uh, worked on this project. You've uh, obviously been in so many positions around this issue from executive director of USA to OSAP manager uh, in the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities. I mean, when you think back on this whole uh, exercise, when you think back on the legacy of it, um, you know, what what stands out to you? Yeah, I find the whole thing um, quite disappointing. And I think part of why we we decided to do this case study was to kind of unpack what happened, right? Because I think it, it was such a long road to get to a place where the political coalition built that could unlock the value of the tax credits, make it more progressive, and then to the points raised earlier, package it in a way that would 
actually change behavior, which is, you know, in many respects, what, what, what was happening. And I think that's what's so shitty about the uh, Auditor General's report is hearts and minds and decisions were changing 100%. Like the different uh, conversations were happening among Indigenous families, single mothers, you know, low-income families uh, that wanted to be that we wanted to reach and hadn't been able to with post-secondary access programs for, for so long. And so I think now that the tax credit money is gone though, and like it will be harder for a future government to recreate these conditions because it's pure investment. Now, both the NDP and the liberals say they will undo these cuts and bring back free tuition. So maybe, um, you know, kind of the, the stink that the students put up uh, during during the Ford government's cuts will will mean that the conditions remain in place uh, for the reforms or some elements of the reforms to come back. Um, I hope so, but um, I think yeah. So I, I think it's I think it's disappointing for me personally, but also part of why we did the case study. I think it's just a really interesting unfolding of public policy with a lot of learnings about the role of the public service, the role of uh, fiscal environments, the role of digital modernization, the role of political leadership, um, the role of evaluation. So I think there's lots of um, learnings to be had. And so, um, yeah, one more pitch. If you want to check it out yourself at divestudentaid.com and would love your reactions on uh, on social media. Um, And uh, we'll keep the conversation going and hopefully keep the pressure up on at least the opposition parties to to bring back uh, some version of free tuition. So um, that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, uh, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Uh, Ontario Loud is Karima Talwa Kapoor, Sam Andre, me, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and Alexi White. Uh, and we are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Inwar and Harmon Mundy. Uh, thank you as well to our supporters on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Ontario Lab or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.